Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is August the 18th, 2016. This is episode 1852 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, this is a Thursday, of course, so that means that it is time for a show that is all about you guys, and not only about you, but you are participating in it directly by calling in at 866-65-THINK. Of course, since it's a podcast and pre-recorded, if you call that number right now, you'll get a recording, you'll leave a message, and maybe it'll be on next week's show. I think I got, not all, but most of the people that called in last week on today's show, because there's some I can uh, be pretty brief with my response, and there's one person that called in that, um, I'm not going to play your call, but I'm going to lump it in with the last call. I think you've actually called your question in twice, and I've been iffy on how to respond to it. And then this other question fits with that, and it'll make sense to you if you're that person when you hear it. Anyway, um, first question today is going to be on growing comfrey over a septic field. The next one is uh, Jason from PA, a regular caller, calling and give some advice to new fathers. Uh, really interesting advice. Um, I have a question I'm going to answer on thoughts uh, about using a revolver as a carry gun. Um, and I also have someone calling in with, uh, who's pretty, you can tell he's upset, he's telling he's angry about the, the continuous issues with cops killing civilians. And uh, I have some thoughts, good and bad, on the cop side and good and bad on the civilian side here. But his solution is the one that, while I agree with it, it doesn't really address the problem because it's not practical at this point in time in human history. And we'll talk about that and what the hell do we do to start a dialogue and fix this problem. Um, also, I have someone asking a question on appendix carry, uh, rather than carrying out like 5 o'clock or hip carry, what have you. And I'll try to do my best on that one. Um, have somebody that's calling with tips on using the WorkSharp sharpener that I recently featured as an Amazon item of the day. Good stuff there. Uh, someone calling in saying they think that maybe the government will sell people on an electronic currency, i.e. like a state government form of Bitcoin, uh, by using the, the auspices of tax reform. Well, I think there's something to it. I don't know that that's how they'll sell it. I think that's supposed to be something they do with it after it happens, and I'll tell you why when I cover that. And then I have a question about how you would deal with a situation. You're in your car, with family maybe, and all of a sudden one of these riots that's going on, like in Milwaukee, there's all these people around your car trying to rock it, get into it, and saying stuff like, we need to kill them because they're white. All right, and that'll, that'll tie in with the question I hadn't answered yet, uh, and I'll talk about how all of this fits together when I get to that one. Um, and it's not an easy answer. There's a, there's a blunt answer, but it may not be a practical answer in every situation, and we'll explain that when we get there. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about 100 trees, vines, and bushes from Bobwell's Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. Hey, folks. When I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was SafeCastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. 
With that knocked out, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1852, and I have two for you from Alex Shrugged. I have The Plaster Cast and The Lord of the Rings, and I have the book that started the war between the states. I also have, in other news, the Grimsby docks are using hydraulic power. A tower stores 300 gallons of water in a reservoir at a height of 200 feet is used to power machinery on the dock. That's something I think a lot of people have lost um knowledge of that you can actually just use moving water to power equipment and machinery you can use compressed air too by the way if you use a an object that also uses falling water called a trombe to develop the compressed air you actually make the water better you take no water away and you make the cleanest uh, and most efficient power known to man and you create refrigeration at the same time uh, but we'll save that for another day and we have Horace Mann brings the Prussian system of education to Massachusetts It's just on a trial basis. If anything goes wrong, we'll fix it endlessly. Yes, the model of education used to indoctrinate, I mean educate, I mean indoctrinate your children, has been going on in this country since 1852, thanks to Horace Mann, who, if, uh, if anybody, you know, they say, like, what would you say to someone that, that if they came back from the beyond and, and, and you had a chance to ask them questions and all, what have you, if Horace Mann came back, I'd just punch him in the face. I'm just saying. That's that's how I feel about the Prussian system of education. Anyway, I'm going to read the book that started a war between the states because of its historical importance. Um, I actually wanted to read the Plaster Cast one because there's a lot of interesting stuff in that and some kind of pop culture stuff mixed in in Alex's take, but I can't not read this because of the historical importance of it, especially for the United States of America. Harriet Beecher Stowe has been publishing Uncle Tom's Cabin in serial form in an abolitionist newspaper, but this year it comes out in book form. It sells 300,000 copies in three months. Will it really start a war? No, it will take the hard work of three failed presidents and an army of fool politicians to turn a painful transition into an ugly, ugly war. But the moral impetus to end slavery in America comes from this book. It is the story of Uncle Tom, a black slave and house servant of a poor white family. When the family fail, falls on hard times, they are forced to sell Tom. Uncle Tom suffers trials and tribulations, especially under Simon Legree, who beats him and his fellow slaves sadistically. But Tom knows his Bible, and he's a model Christian encouraging his fellows to believe in God and take Jesus in their hearts. He is given a chance to escape, but he refuses. The Lord's given me a work among these very poor, these year poor souls, and I'll stay with them and bear my cross with them until the end. The end is near. Simon Legree hates Tom, but Tom fights for Simon's soul. Finally, Simon beats Tom to the ground and he faints away. This is not the end of the book. It is the end of Tom. It is only the end of Tom in his this life. For the immortal soul of Simon Legree and perhaps the soul of every reader who sits and does nothing, something unforgivable has happened. Quote, so this little lady who has made this big war, and quote, President Abraham Lincoln, according to Stowe family tradition. My take by Alex Shrug, must, one must read the book to feel the impact. Harriet Beecher Stowe is making a full-on attempt at convincing Christians that they are murdering Jesus a second time. But those who actually killed him in body and those who stood by and did nothing, I'm not a Christian myself, but the message is clear in this book that it is why I don't understand how the nature of Uncle Tom took on such a negative connotation in later years as if modeling oneself after Jesus is a bad thing. Tom loved his fellow man with all his heart, soul, and body. I suspect that not every Christian is required to suffer unto death while turning the other cheek. But there is a basic goal of loving the sinner and hating the sin. I'll leave it to Christians to figure out 
how this turn of events came about, but I find it hard to believe that the Black Lives Matter people or any kind of loving Christian movement, if it hadn't been for Uncle Tom's cabin, Barack Obama would be getting the Clintons their coffee rather than sitting in the Oval Office as president waiting for coffee to be served. Quote, a few, a few years ago, this guy would have been getting us coffee, end quote, former President Bill Clinton remarking on a presidential candidate, Barack Obama. So if you don't like that statement, take it up with Bill Clinton, not me or Alex Shrugged. So amazing sometimes how you quote somebody and then people will get mad at you for it. Anyway, so my take on this, first of all, this is my view of why Uncle Tom became a slur of a, a black person for another black person kind of doing the, the white man's bidding, I guess, is the way that it gets taken. Partly because Tom was relatively happy in his role before he was sold. He was part of a poor family. They treated him well. He treated them well. So there's the whole concept of, well, you know, you, you, you do what you got to do to get along, and you just accept your slavery, right? And uh, that type of thing. And then the other thing was that Tom did have the opportunity to escape, and not only did he choose not to escape for the benefit of those he was enslaved with, he chose to continue to fight for the soul of his master, right? So he he basically loved the person who was enslaving him because he was commanded to love all men. And that's, you know, loving the slave master is, I think, how that's got turned. Now, I think the average person today, and I don't think it matters if they're white or black, especially in the, the youngest generation, if you, if, you, if you caught them using the term Uncle Tom, And you said, is that a negative thing? They'd say yes. I don't think they could explain to you why. I don't think they could tell you anything about I think most of them haven't read the book. They don't know anything about it. I think it's just become a catch-all phrase used in ignorance, like many things inside uh, current racial divide. But thoughts on racial problems I'll save till the last segment of today's show. And with that, let's go ahead and hear your first question for me today. Hi, Jack. This is Chuck from Maryland. I have a question regarding planting above septic tanks. The details. Specifically, I'd like to plant comfrey because I have an abundance of it thanks to some of the propagation methods I've learned through you. My concern is that it will send down deep roots that will infiltrate the tank and compromise it over time. Uh, is it best to avoid comfrey and stick to some more shallow rooted plants, or do you think that comfrey would be okay right above the tank itself? Thanks so much, Jack, and thanks for the show, and I look forward to your answer. Okay, first, I've, I've answered a lot of questions about septic drain fields and growing stuff over them, and uh, just so I can rehash that for everyone, I am not one of these people that freaks out, and if you grew a tomato over a septic drain field, wouldn't eat it. I think it's, 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 it's really kind of preposterous. I think it's a, another example of overreactions, and I guess it depends. Maybe there could be risk to certain vegetables and stuff like that, um, but I've lived in four homes now that have septic uh, systems. I have never actually seen like anything really weep out of the ground in a septic system. So when people talk like splashing and stuff, I don't know what kind of septic system you have, but I'm talking three different, four, four different climates and four different homes really. Um, maybe three climates because two in Pennsylvania, very different parts of Pennsylvania with different geographies. Uh, one in Arkansas, one here. Now I've never seen anything come up out of the ground. I guess if you had it real heavy use or some kind of flooding, yeah. But so first of all, I don't overreact to this to begin with. Secondly, though, I mean, if you, you know, 
if you look at something like comfort, it's not something you generally sit down and eat a bowl full of. So it, it's certainly something you don't even have that worry. So that's great. Overall, I think it might be an ideal plant. Uh, you mentioned deep roots. Okay, comfrey does get kind of deep roots, but we're talking, you know, a foot. Uh, the really big part, more like eight to nine inches. And, you know, you get these long hair roots that go way, way down. They have amazing penetrative force. Um, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't like build up into this, uh, this nightmare that I think some people think it does. So the other thing it needs is moisture. What comfrey needs moisture. It, people say it'll grow anywhere. You can't get rid of it. It'll die. And put it somewhere dry and don't water it for a while. It'll, it'll dry up and blow away, basically. Now, it, it, it takes dehydrating until the last piece of root is gone. If there's one little piece of root left alive down there somewhere deep, sooner or later it will rise like a phoenix. But it is not the monster people make it out to be. Putting it over a septic drain field means that it's going to be mining all that nutrient. And then it is, is a wonderful uh, mulch crop. It's a wonderful fodder crop for livestock that then process it through further. Uh, there's certainly no reason you couldn't use it medicinally. Uh, it certainly would make good compost tea for manure tea for, 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 uh, for, for potash and other nutrients. It would be a great dynamic accumulator there. I say go for it. Just go for it. And I think it would be a great place to uh, start propagating lots of comfrey for sale if you had that intention, or just to share comfrey with other people. I think that we need to re-comfrey America. I think it's like this 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 miracle plant that does so much for us that almost anybody can grow. I'd say almost anybody, because even people that live in, like I just said, it needs, it needs moisture, and it doesn't want too much sun in your really harsh climates like here. Um, they have somewhere where they have a moist, irrigated area where you can have a little comfrey patch. And I think every house in America should have a patch of comfrey. I really do. Um, so go for it and not only grow great comfrey, but share it with others. Um, it's so easy to propagate. You can yank one plant up and you can, some, you know, a big plant that's had a year or two in the ground, you know, and start breaking pieces off. You can make a hundred new plants off of it and probably without even replanting, it's going to grow back because you never get it all out. It's, uh, seems perfect for it. Now, cause also consider this. People say not to plant trees. Or large shrubs, but small shrubs are planted all the time over septic fields. So, you know, don't plant willow. That could be a disaster. But, you know, a lot of times people plant rose bushes and things like that. Well, comfrey is going to be no more aggressive uh, in, in getting into a septic system than something like a, uh, a rose bush would. So, uh, go for it. Well, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Recently there was a question about survival tips for someone soon to be a father. I'm going to give the best survival tip for any soon-to-be father. Pick a song when you enjoy singing and sing that song to your child while they're in your wife's belly. Sing it all the time because when that baby is done, you're ready to come out, and you can't give that baby the things the mother can, and you've got to take care of that baby you sing that song, and the baby recognizes it, and the baby calms down, and it's amazingly beautiful. You sing that one song, and they associate it with being in the womb, and you'll find that that song will actually calm your kids. Even what's funny is my kids are now several years old, and that song still has a profound effect. Well, um, I don't have much to add to that. What, what, what do you add to such incredible advice? I will only add this. I, I do absolutely believe the validity of that. Uh, I would believe that that works. I, I guess I can say that I know from reports of others that have done it that 
by just like doing the same type of thing with like chickens or ducks when they're in an egg, uh, they recognize your voice when they hatch. I don't see why it would be any different with a child. Um, I guess if you wanted to have some inkling of what it was like, uh, if you were to turn music on uh, fairly loudly and set it by the side of the pool and everything else is quiet and you were to go under the water in the pool and listen, that would probably be similar to what the experience would be like for a baby when still in the womb. And um, I think that doing it over time, right up till the day of birth, seems like it would have validity. And then continuously doing it, because I've known with my, I've noticed with my new granddaughter that, you know, it kind of is a reinforcement for me, because it's been so long since I've been around such young children. Um, you know, when, when they're born, they're not all together developed yet. They're really not finished uh, as, as being fully even uh, formed. It's not just that they learn to walk and talk and stuff like Basic things like holding their head up is a big thing, or even being aware and paying attention. It seems like at first they're kind of just whatever, but now you know she's starting to actually look at people and look at things and watch the flan fan blade circle on the ceiling. Oh, that's the song I'm going to play for the end of today's show. There you go. Um, and uh, you know that type of stuff. I think because it was done before and right after and continued uh, as, as being a father with the child seems to me that not only would it work and, and root all the way back there, but it would continue to reinforce itself. And that's why I could see it working. Uh, even maybe later in life, I could see a child like that if they didn't, because like kids don't really tend to remember much like before four. So like if you had done that and you really didn't do it much after four, they might not remember it. But I bet you if they heard that song, it would trigger a very positive emotional response. So anything we can do to trigger positive emotional responses in our children, I think, is a good thing. And thanks, uh, thanks, Jason, for that tip. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. If you were to switch to a revolver for your concealed carry weapon, what gun would you choose? What round would you use in it? How many rounds would you cycle through the gun to make sure that you could would depend your life upon it? Um, how often would you practice with the, your gun? And would you practice with a cheaper round? And which round would you, what cheaper round would you use? Um, thanks. Bye now. Oh, and, oh, yeah. I really thanks for all you do. It's fantastic. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is everything I'm about to say after this is valid, and I think it's a good choice for some people, but personally I'm going to say I probably wouldn't make the choice. Um, I feel that the semi-auto um, handgun, and specifically its thin form without the protrusions of the cylinder, uh, make a gun that simply carries better. And that even though some of the guns I'm going to give you today carry quite well, if I'm going to scale down to that size of a gun in a semi-auto, uh, it will carry even better. So just from the ergonomics of carry, um, I would prefer to carry semi-auto. Okay, But it is a fine choice for some people, and I could see possibly in situations where it might make a lot of sense even for someone like myself. Um 
when you say how many rounds would you you know want it to, to hold, you're you're in most instances in a choice between five or six, unless we're going to do something like a a twenty two that has eight or something like that. And I'm not going to drop down to a twenty two. When we look at calibers, we're looking at basically you know twenty two thirty eight slash three fifty seven forty four. There are some other options, but those are going to be your big ones. I'm going to go right dead center in the middle at thirty eight slash three fifty seven. I'm going to choose. Most likely a .357 Magnum, though I'm probably not going to actually carry it with .357 Magnum ammo. Why? Well, you'll hear in just a second. Um, and I'm going to look for something that's hammerless, and I'm going to look for something that's that's is reasonably small and lightweight as possible. Um, I'm probably not going to carry like a mid-size revolver as a carry gun. If I were going to, I'd look for something from Smith and Wesson. I'd look for something from Ruger. Uh, those are probably in, or Colt. Those are your, your probably your three that I would look for. Uh, one of your mid-size, mid-frame revolvers. I would probably, um, I, I would be comfortable carrying kind of a mid-size 357 if my attire allowed me to carry in a shoulder holster. So if I was wearing like a, a business suit coat or a, you know like that kind of a jacket. You know, think 70s detective jacket, right? If I was wearing that and a, a, a sport coat, and there was a time in my career where I pretty much always wore clothing like that. And uh, unfortunately, where I was traveling, concealed carry was not an option. But I would have been comfortable with a shoulder holstered 357. However, at, at that point, why not step up to your, you know, your 1911 or your Glock or something? And it's if you can carry that way, it's probably one of the most comfortable ways to carry there is, and it's one of the most practical ways to carry that there is. Okay, it doesn't get in the way of certain things, and you know, when you go to a public restroom, you're not brandishing by accident. You know, I'm just saying, you know, there's certain things that are advantageous about shoulder holster carry. Um, but if I'm going to pick a gun, there's a lot of them out there. I would say I would go to a gun shop and actually go over this again. Um, but off the top of my head, I would probably pick like a, a Ruger. Uh, SP 101, uh, the compact five round uh, 5720, would be uh, one that I would look at. Again, it's a hammerless, uh, double action only. I think that's the way to go with this. It's uh, two and a quarter, two and a two and a quarter inch barrel, and I think that would work if I was going to pick a, a second one. Um, Smith and Wesson M and P uh, 340. I think it's a 340 CT. Uh, those two, when I remember last time I looked at, I went to a gun shop and kind of like went through this mental experiment to do these make sense. Uh, I would look at, there was a, uh, Rossi made a uh, titanium frame, was called like the protector or something like that. Those are actually a really great affordable 357, hammerless 357, um, but they are not, not made anymore, but they're out there and a lot of people kind of crap on, uh, uh Rossi, but, uh, Those were a pretty damn good gun. If I wanted super compact, super lightweight, best carrying thing on the market today, and I'm really talking about a compact gun here, Smith & Wesson makes a 340 PD, and it's all skadium, right? Uh, and it is super lightweight, and it is wonderful gun for what it's intended for. These are all quite small guns. Um, but either way, whether I would, I would just, let's say they made semi-autos illegal and I had to carry, uh, a revolver. Then I would step up to a mid-size, uh, mid-frame size, uh, 357. Again, Ruger, Colt, Smith and Wesson all spring to mind. Uh, double action 
in that case would not go hammerless. With these concealed, uh, small concealed guns, I prefer hammerless, one less thing to snag. Um, there's a lot of ways they can be carried other than a traditional holster, so that's one advantage that they have. Um, I can tell you that, for instance, these compact 357 and 38 also um, carry very, very well. If you know the old school jean jackets, right? Just old school, like Wrangler jean jackets, and they have pockets you can put your hands in from the front. But on the inside, that same pocket has an inside pocket. Carried, it's almost like carrying with a shoulder holster. One of these small compact handguns, or any call small compact handgun, in that jean jacket, it's a very quick draw. It's a lot, again, like a shoulder holster. Um, and that would be another way that they could be carried. They can be fired from inside a pocket. Um, they can be carried in a pocket if you're wearing clothing that's appropriate, uh, holster otherwise. Okay, so as far as ammo, it's going to shock you, but like I said, I probably would not actually run 357 ammo in any of these smaller revolvers. If I step up to a mid-size revolver, something with a four-inch barrel or greater, then I'll go to 357 Magnum ammo. I'm going to look for a good quality, expanding uh, personal defense round. It all works. It's all good. None of it's like, oh, you shot me with the wrong round, so now I'm not going to die. Right? It doesn't work that way. But with with the, the short, snub-nosed revolvers, any .357 Magnum load has loses its efficiency because it doesn't have enough time for the powder to burn to maximize the velocity that you get out of it, where a lot of the .38 Special Plus P rounds... Um, have been optimized for these types of carry guns with that right balance of getting the most you can out of it without losing the efficiency uh, as much as is possible with a, you know, a one and a half to two and a quarter inch barrel. So then the question would be, well, then, Jack, why buy the 357, not the, the 38 in the first place? Because the 357 can shoot 38 special ammo, but a 38 special gun can't shoot 357 ammo. And if you're going to buy a gun, I think that the most you can get out of it is the best way to go. So I would almost never be in a case where I couldn't find one or the other types of ammo. As far as what I would practice in it, these little guns aren't fun to practice with. So I would, I would shoot it with my chosen um, carry round a few times to get a feel for it. And I would probably shoot with it once in a while with a, a light-loaded, just 38 special, like wad cutter, semi-wad cutter, lead cheapo round, the cheapest thing I can get. Uh, light, if I, in fact, me personally, I would probably hand load. I'd probably hand load and, and download to low end just to make these little guns a little bit more comfortable to shoot because it doesn't really matter. What, if I was going to carry this gun, I wouldn't worry so much about practicing with it at the range. I would worry about the most important practice most people never do, practice of draw. Uh, and and re, you know reloading and you know this is another thing that's why your revolver so you're not going to do a whole lot of speed clip reloading I, I don't think with with this type of uh, shooting scenario but I would at least have the option and I would know how to do it and I would carry a, a second uh, set of ammo with me uh, for reloads but I would practice more about how to draw it and how to make sure that I have proper form with it and everything and I'd understand with these small ones. Your, your distance is a limited distance, right? This is a, a true personal protection. This is not something you really want to get in a gunfight with, right? Not that you want to get in a gunfight anyway, but you understand what I'm saying when I say that. With a mid-size .357 revolver, something that you know I could actually double and use as a deer gun, uh, then I would practice with it the same amount of practice that I would do with the, 
the Stig two three nine or the nineteen eleven that I carry, right? They they, they they get used, right? And you know, then you probably look at airsoft coming in as a component of your training as well. But I, I think that what people need to understand when they're making all these decisions is we we plan for the worst case scenario. Well the worst case scenario is I like, you know, multiple guys with rifles shooting at me and I'm I'm surely outgunned with a snub nose thirty eight. Well I'm I'm equally not maybe equally, but I'm I'm still fairly outgunned with my nineteen eleven. Right? So when it comes to personal defense, I think sometimes the practice we get into our heads like, you know, IPP, IPCC shooting, uh, you know, moving and running and gunning and mag swaps and all. And I've talked about this before. In most scenarios, like 99% of scenarios where a citizen has to use lethal defense, the entire situation lasts a matter of seconds. Because usually when people get shot, either they go down and they're in pain and they're, or they're dead or they're dying or they say, stop doing that to me, and they run away, right? It's, it's, it, you, you can look up the stories of people who have been shot and continued to attack, and it does happen, but it's not the majority of situations. And even in instances where the person continues the attack, when something like a, a, a good high-powered 38 special slug gets them in the chest, then there's only a, a thin slice of a thin slice that are able to effectively continue the attack. Because a lot of times people get hit, and they think they can still go, But anybody that's shot a deer knows how that works, right? You shoot a deer. I've seen deer hit uh, through the lungs and jump and run a little bit and stop and kind of start going, and then the ass gives out and they go down, right? So the same type of situations happen with humans. One of the reasons that human beings tend to do better when shot than animals, though, is one, our mental capacity to deal with the situation, but two is... The way we're bipeds, we stand upright. So if we're not hitting the heart, we're hit either side of the chest. We still have one lung. That's not. We're not in good shape, but we might be able to go a little longer than if we had a hole, let's say, shot laterally through us, taking both lungs out. Right. So all of that stuff plays in when it comes to self-defense. But you know, kind of that's where I'm coming at from this. Um, I, I would be comfortable. From a, a practical standpoint, of do I, do I have enough gun carrying a mid-size 357? Okay, I, I would, but I, I don't feel it is, is a, a is a practical gun from comfort of carry. It just it won't carry as comfortable as even a, a you know a full size um, semi-auto with with flat sides. They just don't. I like them, but. I'd stick to semi-auto unless you have a real reason. Now, where these excel, smaller framed shooters, specifically women who don't want to do a lot of training, just enough to be confident you have a gun that you pull out and you pull the trigger and nothing goes wrong with it. And they are also decidedly more difficult for a another person to disarm you with without losing a finger. Um, if you if you've done any martial arts drills where you learn to disarm a, a suspect that has or a suspect I should say an assailant that has a gun pointed at you, you know controlling the weapon and getting out of the plane of the hazard is the way to go. But when it comes to actually getting the weapon loose from the hand, the being able to grab the weapon and use it as a lever is 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 valuable. And the person that lacks the confidence to pull the trigger, um, confronted face to face with someone. Reaching out and just grabbing and snatching, it happens. Um, a lot of times once that grab happens, the person will be willing to shoot, but it's too late. 
You think about like a two-inch snub-nose 38, somebody grabbing that. Almost any way that you grab it, if you're actually going to get any leverage on the gun, you have a good chance if it goes off of your fingertips blowing off. And people that have their fingertip blown off tend to let go of whatever they're holding. I mean, just think of grabbing a hot pot lid when you didn't think it was hot. Now it's a little bit more clear, right? So I think that it has some advantage. It's not a guarantee. And I think that's the big thing. Like, So whenever you are willing to like go down to like a, a, a smaller weapon, and I'm going to talk about that again in another question, uh, people start saying, well, what if, and what if, what if, what if this, what if that, what if this, what There's no guarantees anyway. The, the minute you're into a situation where you're actually relying on a gun, something terrible has gone wrong. And you can have the best gun in the world, the best training in the world, have trained every day of your life, and you can still end up dead. And the next person who, you know, got a gun, went to the range a few times, and you'd think of as being untrained because the situation is different, may be able to successfully defend themselves. It doesn't mean we don't train. It doesn't mean we don't take things seriously. But it also means we realize that at some point we have to say, okay, this is what I'm going with. This is how much time I have to train, and this is this is how I'm going to live my life, and I'm not going to live my life every day afraid that somebody's going to assault me. I have a gun so I can live without fear, not so that I can, not because I live in fear. All right, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Mike in West Virginia. I'm calling to comment on the police state. I have a question for the cops out there. Does legality override morality? Every day I see more and more people being shot and killed by police in situations where if a citizen without a badge did what these cops do, well, that citizen would be in prison. There was a case recently of a 24-year-old woman in Baltimore who was shot and killed by police, and her 5-year-old son was wounded. The reason for the police for being there in the first place was traffic tickets. Are we really shooting women and children in this country over traffic tickets? Because this is immoral, and this is what an occupying force does. And then the cops call your show and cry about the fact that the public has turned on them. Usually they use the few bad apples excuse, but I ask, how many, how many bad cops are too many? Or do we wait until every cop out there, 100% are bad before we do something? We don't need a rating system for the government's attack dogs. We need a private police force that we can fire if they don't do the job. Thanks, Jack. Take care. Now, anybody who's listened to this show for any length of time knows that I am one of the, uh, the hardest people there is on police officers when they don't do their job. And not just when they shoot people, when they do anything that I consider to make them oath-breaking. I have I can coin the phrase oath-breaking piece of shit, and I've used it many times. That said, I don't know the specific incidents this caller is calling and being upset about. I have learned over the years, though, that when I hear that an unarmed citizen was shot by a police officer, that sometimes when I investigate that, I am going to come to the conclusion that that officer is an oath-breaking piece of shit who generally didn't shoot the person just to shoot them, but didn't have the temperament and the mentality to be a police officer, and because they were on edge the wrong way, or because they created the situation into something dangerous, ended up using lethal force when it should never have happened. But I have also learned that I will sometimes be upset and think, oh my God, another one. And when I investigate it, I will find that had I been that officer in that situation, in a situation where I had to do my job, and I ended up in that altercation, there's a very good chance I may have also used lethal force. Okay? And I think before we can start bashing the shit out of police officers, right, we have to, we have to find the middle ground that is 
It's the few bad apples thing, man. If you've been listening, you know how I feel about that. I every time a cop says that, I want to smack him in the face like with a f big, large frozen fish. I think it's like the most I, cops. If you say it, just get it out of your vocabulary. It's 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 effing insulting. I'll say it bluntly. It's fucking insulting. Okay, when you tell when you have officers out there abusing people and you call them bad apples. Fucking Eddie Haskell. Okay, I know I'm using the F word here, but I mean I'm serious about this shit. You guys got to if you want if you want the kind of dialogue I want instead of what this guy seems to be asking for, then, then you got to get this shit through your head. Okay, Eddie Haskell was a bad apple. Okay, from Leave It to Beaver, a cop that breaks his oath is not a bad apple. Okay, so we have to stop that stupid saying right now. A few bad apples. Well, you know, let's if you want to say that a few bad apples does what. Spoils the bunch. Get the bad apples out, right? That's, a, that's so. Maybe you guys can use that term because that's all I'm going to tell you. Then, then it's your freaking responsibility, right? But see, I don't want this animosity. I don't want this hostility between law enforcement and citizens. What what I want is an honest dialogue to start, and that's why I propose the possibility of having some type of a situation where officers are raided by the citizens that they interact with, both the citizens that are um, targets of an investigation and callers who say, come please help me. And, and your solution of, of private police force where they can be fired if the public feels they're not doing their job right, you, you know I agree with it, but what are the odds of that happening? And when you come at this from an anarchist point of view, if you're a rational anarchist, then what you say is, I have to do what I can with what I have. And we build systems that are parallel. So we don't have the ability to replace police departments right now with private police departments. Okay, But if you did, if you did, how would you judge them? Would you say because five people don't like them? Five people think this guy's an asshole? He has to be fired? When those five people are actually criminal assholes and that's why they don't like him? That doesn't make sense to me. So don't you think that some sort of a rating system that actually created a track record, a level of trust and proficiency, that actually rated a, an employee on his performance would be the most beneficial way that when, let's say, officers were reviewed, they either were promoted or fired? Or that if a, a enough number of complaints came in, it triggered some. Don't you think that makes sense anyway? So why not try to... Because, like I said when I brought that system up, there's a lot of flaws with it. It's a lot of ways it could be abused. But I'm sure when somebody said, you know, we can make an electronic form of money uh, that, that's not controlled by governments, that people could just trade on computers and in exchange for money... That there were like people going, oh, you can't do it because of this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and all this. And, and some people got smart enough to figure out how to do it and made Bitcoin, and it worked. So why can't you create a trust rating system for police officers? Let me put it a different way. What harm would it do? What harm would it do? And what does your what what solution for the caller, what are you actually offering as a solution? Well, we'll apply to police forces. Okay, go do that. Now, you might say, well, Jack, you can't code your system. You can't put it into place. I, I can't, but somebody can. And somebody doesn't need anybody's permission to start working on it. How are, how are you going to replace, let's say, the, uh, the Fort Worth Police Department, right where I live, there's the Fort Worth Police Department. By the way, I think those guys overall do a pretty good job. I'm just saying. But if we decided, okay, they need to go, we need to replace Fort Worth PD with private police that cover Fort Worth, 
don't don't explain to me how it would I know how it would work. How are you going to do it? How are you going to make it happen? What are you going to do? You, you know, your neighborhood hiring private security. You can do that. No one will stop you. But you telling the 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 police department, we don't need you here anymore. We have our own security. That isn't going to happen. And, and yes, I know there was the one thing Glenn Beck put out about the city that fired its police department, and, and it's pretty much bullshit, by the way. It's it, it's totally a misrepresentation of what happened, and uh, it, it basically comes down to a place where the police didn't want to go in the first place, and they they were high, they were basically paying police officers as contractors for extra patrols, and they got tired of that, so they hired a private security company to replace that. The police didn't go away. So there's there, there's this belief that people like we you and I share that it would be better if there was no state, but there is a state. So then the way you replace the state through displacement, right, is parallel systems that interact at the edge and and push a displacement into the state. That's what Bitcoin's doing as an economic disruptor. You know, and that's that's what. There, there's so much of this going on right now in the anarcho world, and a lot of people are doing it. Don't even realize they're they're actually working the anarchist agenda. There, there are you know free zones of trade being created around the world, and, and some of them have no real political agenda. They just think this is the way things should be, so they're doing it on their own. But but no one's saying okay, well since the salute, you know, let, let's look at it a different way. I believe that the public education system which should be called the government education system, is an abject failure, and I believe it's creating an abusive situation for children in this country. I believe that a lot of the problems that we have stem from that educational system. Okay? I absolutely do. Um, there's no doubt in the world that if I could raise my hand and d dissolve that system, and given the opportunity under the right circumstances, I would. Okay, but making it all go away tomorrow is impossible. So I'm all for anything that, that displaces any piece of it or makes the piece that is supposed to be accountable to the public more accountable to the public. So if somebody could come up with a system, let's say, that rated teachers, I, I would be very much for it, though I think those kind of exist and they're pretty much used by disgruntled students and no one really cares. I'd actually much prefer to see a solution where teachers can rate administrators, because I think there's your real problem. I think there's your real problem. So even though that might actually help the public education sector work better, which really isn't my goal, I would be for it because it reduces the damage that they're causing and therefore empowers my actions on the outside, like get your kids out of school, to do more. So if you actually came up with a system that rated officers that began to reform departments, you might actually find all kinds of places where police are acting where they're not necessary, and if there was visibility of that, then that action might be eliminated. Or you might actually find how many laws cops are supposed to enforce that they're not doing and they're turning their, their eyes to and their back to, and the public's okay with that because they're victimless crimes, and that might actually bring more support for, well, why the hell don't we decriminalize this? I'm not saying it's a perfect solution, but what I am saying is when you just say, we just need a private police force, well, pff, like that can't be abusive. 
you'd still need the same kind of systems of checks and balances. So why not build it in advance so as you get to a point where you can begin in certain areas, at least to transition to that, you have the, the, the platform, the software, the operational system, so that you can actually judge what is good and what is bad. Because what you have the problem with a private police force is if I have a lot of money and you don't, then basically that police force can become for my hire. But if you have an independent, truly democratic system of evaluation for not just police officers, but any profession that has to interact with people a great deal, then don't you think you'd do a better job of managing it, whether it was through public accountability or whether it was through individual contract or corporate-based employment? It just seems like a better way to me. I don't know. And I'm sorry for the uh, vulgarity in this one, but I am sick of the bad apple term. And I want every law enforcement officer out there that is one of the good, idea, good guys to take it in and think about this whole crap about bad apples. And just amazes me I never took this long. If that guy's next to you and he's a bad apple, he's going to ruin you if you don't get him out of his job. And stop telling me the sob stories that probably tick this guy off that it can't be done. Because I just bet, I just bet, if enough of you would man up, stand up, bone up, back up, and make that thin blue line face inward instead of outward once in a while, you could. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Chris from Plano, Texas. And I was wondering what are your thoughts on appendix carry for concealed carry? Um, I'm a new Texas LPC holder, and I have a compact 9mm. Um, and I've tried the 5 o'clock, 4 o'clock. It doesn't work well for me. Um, some of my concerns to consider is just I have a small build. Um, it's hard to access the gun when driving. Um, at work, I need to wear a tucked-in tucked shirt. And I've got one of the other things is I've got young kids. Sometimes I carry them around, and I'm not so sure uh, which is a safer position for the gun to be in. Get granted, I will make sure they don't have access to it in the first place. Anyway, just wanted to know your thoughts. Thanks, and hope to hear this on the show. Thanks for everything you do. Bye. Well, remember I had some words about not necessarily worrying about carrying a gun that you could have a, uh, you know, a red dawn battle with and, and, and not necessarily being, uh, at a disadvantage in most situations where you would need lethal force because you're carrying a smaller gun. And the first thing you might consider, and there's nothing wrong with appendix carry, we'll get to that in a second, but is possibly carrying a smaller firearm. Um, nine millimeters, stuff like the uh, Beretta Nano, the Kimber Solo Carry, the uh, Keltec PF9. These types of things spring to mind. If you look at one of one of these types of guns, you realize that you can carry a you know a, a full horsepower nine millimeter uh, in a very compact frame, and that alone, especially for a smaller framed person, may make uh, carrying easier. If you're worried about You know, your kids, I think appendix carrying uh, might have some advantage then to carrying, you know, uh, on the hip because I guess you could bend over, your shirt comes up, kids like what's that or something, but uh, I, I don't really think that's a, a huge concern anyway. I do think if you can find the right solution, uh, a lot of times if you can find the right solution, it will work for you. A retention holster makes a lot of sense. Here's something to think about. 
if you get in a, a, a fight of any kind and you're a concealed carry holder, you're going to be in a fight where a gun's involved. That doesn't mean you're going to draw the gun, but that means the gun's going to be there. So that means you're somewhere, someone starts popping off or something and, and, and mouthing off and, and, and just being kind of violent, and they push you, they shove you, maybe you get into a kind of a tussle situation, um, and, and you're at a situation where you're like, I'm not going to shoot this guy over this. Like, I can handle this. Um, if it goes further, the gun's there, whether you intend to use it or not. Okay, so having a good retention system of some sort makes a lot of sense. Again, I won't do that in any way that will disable my ability to comfortably carry, depending on the gun I want to carry, the situation, the clothing, etc. I would rather have a good old-fashioned Kydex holster uh, than carry something that makes me not want to carry. Uh, for appendix carry, I mean, there's a variety of holsters. I would say that it makes a lot of sense for you to go to a good gun shop Um, you know, and, and discuss that with a good gun shop, uh, with them and, and have maybe the opportunity to try several different holsters. Uh, a lot of gun shows often have, uh, pretty good tables with different options for carry and actually see what it, because like just if I tell you, like, well, I use this holster and you get it, that doesn't mean anything. I, I'm a 225 pound guy, right? And I, and I, I'm almost six foot tall, right? So, What feels small to me might feel big to you. I'm just saying, you know. So you got to kind of figure that out. Another option, though, you might consider is a belly band. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of people have gone to that. And uh, if you go to ITS Tactical and search belly band, you'll find the write-up there that Kelly Black, Brian's uh, wife, did on belly band carry for females. And, you know, the reason that works well for females is they are slider built. And, like, I don't think that somebody should be like, well, I don't want to do that because I'm a woman solution. A lot of guys wear belly bands, right? I know Brian carried with a belly band for quite a while. So I think you have to kind of make your own decision on that. I guess for me, appendix carry, what's kind of always bothered me about it is it's kind of up against your inside. And when you're seated in a vehicle, you've kind of got it hammered up in against the gut. And I've not found it to be the most comfortable thing personally, but other people do it all the time and have no problem with it, you know, um, so it's, in the end, that, that decision is yours to make, but like I said, one of the things I think a lot of people could do who like to carry, who want to carry, but due to their clothing, their dress, whatever, feel that it's uncomfortable, could look at carrying smaller lighter guns, and when it's winter, When you've got that, that, that secondary coat on, when you've got that, that sports coat on or whatever, and you want to go back up to a larger frame gun, that's fine. But I w the reason I say this is this is what I've, I've, I've actually realized has happened. I've talked to people who regularly can still carry and we'll have that, you know, uh, conversation. Oh, let me see. And then, oh, I'm not carrying right now. Why not? Well, I'm wearing shorts and it's uncomfortable. And so what that means is because they were reluctant to go to a smaller gun, they go unarmed. And, and I would rather have, you know, a Caltech PF9 that some people would scoff at uh, than no gun. And I think scoffing at something because it's not what you have uh, or it's not what the pros use, the, uh, the military ninjas use or something like that is, is, is foolish. Because I've made a decision about all guns. I don't want to be shot by any of them. And I think most people would agree with that. So uh, just let that kind of be your guide. But, you know, again, I think... 
I don't think it's really an issue of appendix carry versus five o'clock carry versus a belly band. I think it's an issue of you, you know, whatever whatever weapon is your carry gun, you getting out and trying different solutions with it and finding the one that works best for you and evaluating even is this the right gun for me? You know, um, you can say what you have. So if you're trying to carry something like a, a 1911, even a compact 1911, it, it may just, you know, that's what Jack carries. So maybe it doesn't work well for you. You know, it, it is a heavy gun. There's times I think about going elsewhere, honestly. I just love the gun. So we make decisions based on what we have as our own personal wants and desires. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Dave calling from Eagle County, Colorado. I uh, just listened to your last comment show, and uh, uh, one of the callers uh, mentioned the work sharp knife sharpener. Uh, I own one. I've owned it for about a year. I wanted to tell you it does a pretty good job. Uh, it does not seem to get them razor sharp, but it does do a decent job. Uh, one thing to be warned about is uh, on blades that have a bit of a curve to them, you don't want to sort of roll the knife at the end or you'll end up kind of uh, taking off a little bit of um, You just kind of want to keep the blade nice and level. Um, second thing is uh, I seem wholly incapable of getting knives super razor sharp, um, which is why I bought the work sharp. Uh, even using stones, I just cannot seem to get the knives as sharp as other people can. Um, so maybe if you have a YouTube video you'd suggest, I tried looking for some myself. Um, the ones I found didn't seem to help me. Thank you. I think one thing that's important to understand when you, you look at a tool like the WorkSharp, and I've been continuing to work with my WorkSharp, work with my WorkSharp, and uh, uh, getting better with it, and uh, I'm really impressed by it. Uh, can I sharpen a knife the way Patrick Rohrman does? No, but it doesn't matter what he's using or what I'm using. I'm still not because he, he's got a lot more experience sharpening than I do, and he has a passion for it where I just see it as a necessary skill so that my knives are sharp. Um, but it might be the case that I, you know, even though I've only been using mine for a week and a half now, I might be able to sharpen my knives better than you can with it uh, because I have quite a bit of experience using you know, machines. Uh, whether it be grinders or, or shop machinery of, of various types, lathes, you name it. Uh, so there's a certain amount of touch you get when you're using machinery. And that when we look at something like a knife sharpener, whether it's a, a work sharp, whether it's a, it's a $600 belt sander, you know, um, whether it's a, a set of uh, high-quality Japanese water stones or a, a low-quality set of oil stones, that... You have to develop the skill to use the tool. And some tools require less skill, but all tools require skill. Right? So I, I think sometimes with knives, we expect it to be like this magic thing. We'll just run it through there and it'll be razor sharp. Well, it would be like saying, well, okay, I'm going to go play golf. I don't know anybody who plays golf except Tiger Woods. And I know he's not doing that great. He's still a lot better than me. I'm going to go play golf against Tiger Woods. And I get whatever the best golf clubs are in the world. And you see how little I know about golf. Imagine how I play. I get those, and Tiger has to play with, like, I don't know, um, like like Wilson clubs from Walmart. And then expecting that, well, I'll play better golf because I have better clubs, right? The skill is more important than the tool in many instances, which is why Patrick specifically recommends if you're going to use a mechanical sharpening instrument that you learn to sharpen by hand first. And um, I'm with you. I, I can do an okay job with stones, but I really, personally, I just don't have the time. 
and that, and that's why I was really excited to find an automated tool like the WorkSharp. Uh, as far as like the curved blade and all, yeah, there's a there, the, the the big thing I found with the WorkSharp so far is you have that that angle guide, and you're drawing the blade back against the moving belt, and as you get to the last little bit of the tip of that knife. There's a point where there's a little bit you got to come across that belt where you lose the guide. And if you're pushing too hard on the guide, well, if you push real hard on the guide, you'll move it, right? So if you, you, you're relying, you're just laying it up against the guide. And you're, what you're trying to do is let the guide bring you to almost a freehand movement. And that way, as you get to that last little tip, you can maintain it for that last, like, you know, it's not even an eighth of an inch. It's like a sixteenth of an inch as you come off the tip. And, uh, yeah. Um, but I think that... I wouldn't say that it works pretty good. I'd say it works great. And I'm basing that on how much better does the WorkSharp work than everything else that is a mechanical tool for sharpening that I've ever seen other than very expensive belt sharpening tools. And you, there, I'm telling you, there's people that can use one of those and make a good edge, and there's people that can use one of those and make a fantastic edge. And I would tell you that Patrick would even say, Give him a good belt sharpener. He'll sharpen a knife sharper than you ever need it to be. But he can still do a better job with a stone. Or if he takes that knife off the belt sharpener and finishes it on a stone, he can take it to another level yet. And where you and I, we might actually make it worse putting it on the stone after we had it on a belt sharpener. Because we haven't developed that level of skill. So I think in all things, skill development is important. Anyway, if you want to see my review of the workshop, I'll have a link in today's show notes. Hey, Jack, this is Rick from West Virginia. I was listening to your show from Monday the uh, what, 16th, I guess, and you were talking about uh, blockchain and the big banks. It's real simple how they sell it. All they do is they bill it as IRS income tax reform. Think about it. If you can audit every dime, all these big, bad, rich people can't use their loopholes. How much easier when you don't have to file at the end of every year? It's all automatic. It's easy. It's simple. It simplifies everything, and it makes our life great because all these dishonest people can't hide their money from the government, and everybody pays their fair share. Now, we all know it's BS, but the point is I instantly thought that that's the perfect sell for it, and both sides can get behind it. All they do is pick which side to argue against the other side about. So we're simplifying the tax code, Republicans. We're making the wealthy pay their well, their fair share from the Democrats, and both sides magically get what they want. Now, we all know it's a load of BS, but at the same time, just listening to you talk about that makes it insanely simple that that's exactly how they could sell that to the public. Thanks for what you do. Enjoy the show. Have a good day. I, I agree that that's how they would sell um, a tax change under a new currency. I don't think that's how they would sell the currency to the sheep, though, and I'll explain to you in a variety of reasons why. Number one, Congress does not have the power right now to change the monetary system. They don't. Uh, in 1913, it was abdicated to a group of people you're probably well aware of called the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve actually could make this type of change without permission. Uh, the only recourse would be if uh, Congress were to uh, recall the chairman and then pass legislation to take away authority over the monetary system from the Federal Reserve or the pres you know, basically impeach the chairman and the president appoints a new chairman. But the, the chairman of the Fed is, is more of a figurehead than an actual decision maker. Um, it's a mouthpiece for the actual people you never see that actually make up the board 
uh, of the Federal Reserve, people whose names you'll never hear. And that's not conspiracy talk. It's real. If you if you want to tell me it's not true, then tell me you know without looking it up anyway. Tell me who the uh, the, the the board of directors of the, the current Federal Reserve are. You never hear their names, and I'll tell you that even those people are answering to people for the banks they represent that tell them what to f to do. So if they actually want to make this change, all they have to do is manage the. The confidence concerns. Uh, remember what I've always said. So money works as well as there is confidence in the money to work because the money draws its value from the economy that it circulates in. I, I think that they are absolutely going to go to an electronic currency. Um, their, their hard thing to get done is going to be killing cash. right? They can go to an electronic blockchain-like currency Tomorrow, if they could, well, they're not smart enough with the technology yet, right? That these these uh, these people building platforms like Ethereum and, and what have you are actually smarter than the people in government and in these banks, right? They they really are because they're thinking differently. But once they have the technology figured out, because it's not like they could clone Bitcoin, sure, but that's not what they want. They wanted to have all these controls that they have. Sadly, they could use Ethereum to build this, right? I've, I've looked at this yesterday. Like if I wanted to create like uh, TSP tokens or something, I, I could roll it out pretty quick. Um, and I could, they could have all the control they wanted. Uh, so the technology is there. So once they had that, they could just start running things that way. They wouldn't have to actually change it. They wouldn't have to actually eliminate cash. At first, remember, cash makes up only about 3% of the M3. The M3 is all the dollars that exist in the world. 3% are in paper anyway. So how much longer is it going to take to snuff that 3% out of circulation anyway? right? So if it goes down to 1%, 1.5%, it gets a lot easier to kill off anyway. Nobody's using it. And let's say they did go to some kind of a UBI, Universal Basic Income. This is actually the easiest way to get people on board with it, right? So it would work like this. Oh, you want your UBI. Well, what's my UBI? You get money for existing. Yeah, I want my money for existing, right? Because it doesn't mean if you don't take it, you don't pay taxes or anything. Like you either get this money or you don't. Okay, so I want my UBI. Okay, well, you need a bank account to get your UBI. Okay, well, then they start sending you UBI using this new protocol, And you have a means to spend it using this new protocol. Well, now every citizen in America has an income and a spending mechanism based on the new technology. Now you back your income tax into it. It would be much easier to, to, to sell people on the fact that everybody's going to get some money. And what will probably happen is it'll be less than anybody's ever talked about, but it'll be a, a way to entice people, and that might be it. I can see what you're saying, though, like... Your, your assertion makes sense. Like, okay, the rich people will finally pay their fair share. And people don't realize rich people don't not pay their fair share by hiding money. The money they're not paying taxes on is in plain sight. Rich people don't have money. They have companies that make money. Companies have profit and loss statements. The, 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 the way that you avoid taxes many times is through depre like things like non-material expenses, like depreciation expenses. That's why there's so many real estate millionaires. Because a lot of guys were already millionaires. They put money in real estate so they could create a false loss. That's just one example of a thousand different ways that these rich people create these losses. But could they lie to the sheeple and say, oh, we'll make sure they pay their fair share now? Maybe. I don't know. 
There's a lot of different ways they can sell this. But I think what they're going to do is they're not going to sell it before the fact. They're going to do it and explain it as they go. Because in, unless Congress removes the charter of the Federal Reserve, when it comes to the decisions on how money is created, expanded, and controlled, your Congress doesn't have anything to do with it. Your president doesn't have anything to do with it. Now, if they really didn't like it, they do have recourse. The, the Congress of the United States of America, especially if the president was on board, could remove the Federal Reserve's authority like that. They created it like that. They can remove it like that. There's no desire or political will, and the banks own the politicians, and the banks own the Federal Reserve, so that ain't going to happen. So I think they're just going to do it. It's, it's not how they sell us on letting them do it. It's how they sell us on it at all. And they, you're right. They may use tax reform somewhere in there. It'll be interesting to see. Interesting way of thinking about it. Good, good for you in thinking in that direction. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Question for you. How would you respond if you found yourself and your wife in your car surrounded by violent protesters who sought to do you harm? Background. I saw some video clips of a violent mob attacking some innocent people in their car because they happened to be white and they happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I know the answer involves situational awareness, staying out of the bad areas and paying attention to what's going on around you, but things can escalate quickly and previously safe places can become unsafe in a hurry. So how would you respond in that situation? Thanks, Jack. I'm going to start out by taking race out of it, and then I'm going to bring race back into it because of the other question I mentioned at the beginning of the show. So I'll just tell you that question now so I can roll right through this. I have a person that's called, I think, twice now and asked, do I think a race war is coming? And this person's concerned uh, specifically because their, their children aren't white, which I don't think, if you have a race war, I don't think that there's an advantage to being either color, by the way. I think that everybody's a potential target of anybody that's of an opposite race if you have a race war. Um So we'll, we'll set that on the shelf for a minute. So if I am in a car, especially if I have others that I'm trying to protect, and I believe people want to hurt me, and they are beating on the window trying to open the door, trying to pull me out of the car, um, tankers, like people that drive tanks in the military, have a term for people that are not tankers when they're in a battle with them. They call them squishies. And I guess you can figure out what that means. Um, cars aren't tanks. But usually when a human body bumps up against a, a motorized vehicle, a human body loses. And I look at it this way. If I'm in a situation where if I were in that same situation, I would draw my gun and shoot you, I will run you over. Now, it is the case that like any use of force that's potentially lethal or is lethal, you have to be able to defend yourself to authorities that you did what you did. However... Once I've got people screaming something like, kill him, they're white, or kill him, he's a guy, or kill him, he's blonde, or kill him, he's in a red car, or kill him because he's in love with space aliens, or kill him anything, I believe you intend to kill me, and I will run your ass over. And I will keep going until I am free and clear. Although, that sounds good. When you have a large enough crowd, even a vehicle can be stopped, And you can get into a situation where, yeah, the people you ran over needed it, deserved it. But if you're going through a much larger crowd, you end up being the guy in, in, in France that ran over all the people with the truck. 
and you can't slow down because, and I, if you've never seen this, um, I, I'm not going to look it up today. Um, I'm running long today, so I'm not going to be able to find this and add to the show notes. But there's a video of a guy, if you haven't seen it, where these motorcycle guys chase him down and uh, beat the shit out of his window of his car and pull him out of his car. Um, y you know, you can get a situation where you have people come after you in one of these situations as well. Uh, there's there, there's no guarantees in in life in these situations. So I guess it all depends on the totality of the situation. But if you're trying to kill me in my vehicle, then I'm going to move my vehicle. And if you happen to get run over, you shouldn't have been trying to kill me because I'm going to kill you back. And I would say, what is the difference morally? If you were in the same situation, I thought you, the, the group of you was trying to kill me, and I draw my .45 and start putting holes in people. I mean, th 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 you gotta you got to think about it that way. I would, with the initial attempt to not run anybody over, try to leave as fast as I can with my vehicle within reason. If I have people screaming they're going to kill me and somebody jumps in front of the car, they just bought themselves a one-way ticket to the pavement. Uh, and, and that's harsh reality. Now, if I'm driving along and you got these idiots walking through the middle of interstates and stuff, I'm not going to start playing Frogger with them. I, I think there's, you know, but if I think it's a violence issue, if I think it's a violence issue and they mean me harm, then I'll use whatever improvised weapon, in this case, maybe an F-350 pickup truck, you know, to to deal with that situation. If they want to hang on for a ride, Mythbusters showed me how to handle that. That doesn't work out. You can read that shit in the movies, watch that shit in the movies. It does not work out for the person trying to hang on and get into the back of a car. That's a, that's a, a Hollywood stuntman pile of crap. Um, now, coming back into this, like this stuff's happening due to racial tensions, And it, it kind of merges in with the call from the caller about police officers. And this is why I want you officers to start figuring out how to self-police this shit because this is where this is headed. However, do I think a race war is coming, like imminent? No. No, this hasn't turned into the Alex Jones hour. Do I think a race war is possible in our future? Yeah. Do I think it's highly possible? No, but I think it still could happen. The, the, the thing is, to have what you would call a true race war, you have to have enough people that are willing to, to go out and commit murder and mayhem of people of an opposite race just because. And uh, it's happened in history, so we know it can happen. I think that for it to happen in this country is, is highly unlikely. It's highly unlikely. And uh, it would be awful bloody if it did. Uh, I will say that. I think... What we need is we need honesty from all sides, and we need to start being honest about things, like the whole Black Lives Matter thing. I think you need to realize that the force behind Black Lives Matter is basically three different groups of people. Okay, um, The least dangerous, but adding way too much credibility to it, is a whole bunch of sorry-ass, uh, white, guilt-laden, middle-class, social justice warrior, millennial idiots that are out hashtagging it and saying they support it and all, and they don't know anything about this stuff except what the TV tells them and what Facebook and, and YouTube and, uh, and Twitter tell them. They don't know shit, right? They don't know that a lot of these neighborhoods, that if they walked into them, they would be a target. No one would care that you hashtag Black Lives Matter, all right, while these riots are going on. That's one group. Then you have another group, primarily African Americans, who 
like the idea of this, they feel it gives them a voice, but don't really get or don't want to get that the core of it is a racist hate group. And then you have the people behind it, and they know they're a racist hate group. They know they're a racist hate group. And I don't think that group should be given any more credibility than the freaking Ku Klux Klan. And when we give hateful groups credibility, when we have them to the White House, then we empower them to do more damage. And I know there's some of you out there that are, are, are black. I have a larger black audience than I think most people would think. And you might be upset with me for this and say, I don't know what it's like to be you. And I'll be the first person to tell you, I don't know what it's like to be you. I don't know what it's like to be judged solely for the color of my skin walking down the road by a police officer. I, I don't. I do know what it's like to be judged for the color of my skin by a bunch of black kids when I had to go to a black school because Florida thought it was a good idea to integrate school systems in the 70s and 80s, and it wasn't any fun that way either. But in general, I get your point. I do. Um, I do think there is racism in this country, and I think there is at least a level of institutionalized racism. But I think that if, 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 if black Americans and Americans of any minority status want to have the honest conversation about that, then we have to have the other side of the honest conversation. If we're giving people jobs just because they're black or just because they're female or just because they're Asian or just because they're Native American or what have you, with minority hiring quotas, you're going to have animosity from the other side too. If you want equality, you get equality. You don't get preferential treatment. And, and this is why I don't think a race war is necessarily coming. There are scumbag, piece-of-shit, maggot human beings that are white racists, black racists, Hispanic racists, that would love to see a race war. Fortunately, they are a vast minority. The people in power, like the Rupert Murdochs of the world and stuff like that, they love racial tension. They love racial divide. They don't want an actual race war. See, the way the people that run this country keep control of it is to have you at each other's throat almost. And in doing that, they maintain enough of a fear You're afraid of me. I'm afraid of you. I blame you for why I don't have more money. You blame me for why you don't have more money. I blame you for my high taxes. You blame me for your low uh, government assistance money. It's not enough to live on. And if you go to a full all-out war, then all of that breaks down, and they don't get to make their money off the backs of all of us. And until we can all look at each other and realize it's not us and them between me and you, it's all of us and the few of them, we're not going to get anywhere. And they'll keep using us as their pawns in their system. And they'll leverage black against white, and they'll re leverage male against female. They'll, they'll encourage stupidity and lunacy like the healthy at any size movement that wants us to believe that you can be a 500-pound behemoth. Uh, and, and unable to get up out of a chair and still be healthy. It's nonsensical. And they, they banner that. Look it up. Google it. Healthy at any size. It'll blow your mind. It'll blow your mind what these people actually think. This whole movement for social justice, all these safe spaces and colleges, this is the root of all this stuff. The self-loathing, self-white guilt. That, that, like it's, it's, it's Somehow you should feel guilty because you're a white person. If you want social justice, actual social justice, if you want real justice for people of color, then you don't denigrate how white people are treated in general. You say that that is the minimum standard that we should all be treated by. 
But nobody wants to hear this. Nobody wants to say this. Nobody wants to talk about this. Nobody wants to admit this. Everybody wants to blame somebody else. We want to take a look at the hateful, racist, black person yelling, and, and for those of us that live in primarily white communities, and say, see, they're causing their own problem, and ignore you know, the 90% of African Americans that think that person's an idiot and an asshole. They wouldn't, they wouldn't walk across the street to pee on that person if they were on fire, because it makes us feel comfortable, because it feels like, well, we're right. We want to turn around and we want to ignore the fact that cops do racially profile. Don't tell me you don't. Now, I, actually, I would say that. Cops, you can tell me you don't. I might believe you. But don't tell me police across our country do not racially profile. It, it's just untrue. It's un, and there's, there's way too many documented incidences of it. How about the one where the guy goes walking down the road with an a, in an open carry state with an AR slung on his back. They call the police. Police come, walk up to him. Hey, how you doing? What are you doing? I'm I'm an open carry advocate. You know, that's what I do. And you know, they, but we really prefer that you not do this. And I know you prefer that I not do this, but I'm not breaking the law, so I'm going to go on my way. And it all kind of goes away. And they realize he's not a terrorist or something. And they just kind of say, you know, we'd appreciate it if you didn't. He said, I know you appreciate it, but and then they have the, the, the same damn jurisdiction. A black dude walked down, and they, the first thing they do is put him on the ground on his stomach. That's not racial profiling? Are you going to look me in the face and say that's not racial profiling? Are you seriously going to tell me there's, well, it's, it's, that's not, that's not Bullshit! That tells you right there that the officers perceive the person as a greater threat due to the color of their skin. And if that is the perception, then the reality will result in profiling whether it is the The, the, the procedure and standard of the organization of the department or not. And if that's the mentality of a chief, then it becomes the mentality of the Indians that serve under the chief. And the only way we get by it, we have to, we have to kill all of the divide. We have to kill all the divide. If someone is treated unfairly, we don't turn around and say it's because somebody else has white privilege. We say, that's wrong. That's wrong. And we're not okay with it, ever, ever. And we don't just make this police violence issue about black people. It ain't just about black people. There's officers that do their job every day. I want to say that one more time so that nobody takes us the wrong way. There's officers every day out abusing the rights of white people, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people. If, if we had new green people that showed up tomorrow, sooner or later they'd run afoul of the law. And there are I mean, I've talked to officers that didn't do anything um, wrong in their engagements with me as far as did they break the law, did they violate procedure, but they were assholes over a speeding ticket. I can only imagine if, uh, if that person that was an asshole to me, real asshole to me, for doing 10 over the speed limit on an access road, making a U-turn because I was going to be late for work, talked to me like I was a piece of crap, Uh, if I had been a black person and he had been a racist. Just saying. Because he was already an asshole. We shouldn't be okay with him being an asshole to me. We shouldn't be okay with him being an asshole to somebody because he's a racist. doesn't matter. Your job is not to be an asshole. Your job is to do your job, to protect and serve. But I feel like I'm wasting my breath. I feel like the country's not ready to hear this stuff yet. I feel like everybody wants to go off in their little hole and convince themselves that their side is right. There's wrong everywhere right now. Everybody's wrong. 
everybody's performing below the level we should for equality in freaking 2016 right now. And when I say everybody, I don't mean you as an individual. I mean every group. Cops, period. African-American community, period. White community, period. All of us. None of us are willing to actually say what needs to be said in enough numbers that people have to listen. Because it's much easier to get people upset and revved up with hatred to either side. And if you think about it, that's all this is right now. Every single black person shot by a police officer is unjustified. Every single one. And they're just murdering us and gunning us down in the streets. Bullshit. And then the response from the right of back the blue no matter what, they're all, you know, and it's a few bad apples and that crap. Bullshit. The truth lies somewhere in the middle. But I'll tell you the only solution, in the end, the only people that are ever going to fix this, and I've told this to family members that are law enforcement officers, you guys are going to have to stand up and say, you know what, as bad as those people are over there that are calling us all killers, they're not 100% wrong. And we will be the first ones to sound the alarm. And until you have the courage to do so, there will be no solution to this problem. It will only get worse. I wish I had better news. I don't. Anyway, we've gone on long enough today. Let's uh, go ahead and wrap things up. If you'd like this show and you support the work that I do, uh, do consider becoming a member of the support brigade. You can do that by going to thesurvivalpodcast.com and clicking on members to learn more there. That's all I'll say about that today. also want to remind you, you can support this show by doing your Amazon shopping through TSPAS. Dot com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. When you do that, you will uh, go to a page on the website, on the Survival Podcast website, and you can just click a link to go on through. And when you go on through that link to Amazon, you can point, click, and buy the items that you're interested in at, the, at, at Amazon, just like you normally would. You just type one less letter. T-SPAZ has one less letter than Amazon. Buy your stuff. We get credit for your business. If you like the show, if you think the work I'm doing is important, if you think the voice needs to be heard for, a, you know, been here eight years, for another eight years, that's a great way to make sure that it happens. And I do put up an item of the day every day. And I got a great one for you today. I'll be short on it because I covered it in the past um, when I did a show called, uh, I think it was like 15 Items for the Prepper Kitchen. It is uh, made by a company called uh, Con Recon, uh, which is a Swiss company. It's a Julianne Peeler. A survival podcast with Julianne Peeler. Hey, how about your health? Your health's important, right? So Julianne Peeler lets you peel Julianne. So you make little Julianne strips. You take a zucchini with this thing, and you peel the zucchini, and there's a whole article on how to do this. You make zoodles. Zoodles? What's a zoodle? It's like a noodle, but it's made out of a zucchini. No carbs. Or like one carb to a big-ass serving of it, right? So you, you peel your zucchinis. You put them in a strainer. You throw a little bit of salt on them, toss it around. You let them sit for half an hour. You take them out of there, and you put them on some paper towels and let them fully drain. Saute them in, in, in like olive oil. Add a little bit of butter and whatever seasonings you want. No salt. You've added enough, right? And you end up with zoodles. And it tastes like angel hair pasta. I'm, I'm not kidding. It really does. you got to do the salt thing, though. The whole article's there, and these things are like 11 bucks, 10 bucks, something like that. And it's the best tool like it made. Nobody else comes close to the quality of uh, Kunrican, and uh, you should really you know, give this one a, a shot. But if you're not interested, remember, tspaz.com, shop on Amazon. You know that's, that's always like the easiest, no-cost way to help support this show. 
So with all that heaviness, I figured I'll close with something today. Uh, a song I've played before, but uh, with, with Jason's comment about uh, kids, you know, and, and singing to them and stuff. Um, if you're a new father or soon to be father, and you want to take his advice, um, and you're going to have a girl, I don't know a, a better song you could pick. And uh, it's it's amazing how true this song is. My wife and I were talking about this with our granddaughter Tegan. As little as she is, she's already kind of infatuated with the uh, the blades of the fan on the ceiling. That's, of course, from the song Little Miss Magic by Jimmy Buffett. So I know you might not be in the most uplifted, uh, feel-good place today after some of the deep subjects today, but I respond to the calls that come in, guys. I really do. Um, maybe this will make you feel better. Because in spite of everything I said, in the end, we have to focus on what we control. And, and I'd love to see the whole world, you know, like the Coke commercial from the 70s, teach the world to sing and buy them a Coke and everybody in perfect harmony holding hands. But all you can do is be there for the people that want you to be there for them. And starting with your kids is a good place. In the words of Jimmy Buffett, when he was asked about this song, he said he wrote it for Savannah Jane, who is his daughter, because if you don't write a song for your daughter, you go to hell. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Constantly amazed by the blades of the fan on the ceiling. The clever little glances she gives me can't help but be appealing. She loves to ride into town with the top down. Feel that warm breeze on her gentle skin. She is my next of kin. I see a little more of me every day. I catch a little more mustache turning gray. Your mother is the only other woman for me. Little Miss Magic, what you gonna be? Sometimes I catch her dreaming and wonder where that little mind meanders. Is she strolling along the shore, cruising o'er the broad savannah? I know someday she'll learn to make up her own rhymes. Someday she's gonna learn how to fly. Oh, that I won't deny. I catch a little more dialogue coming my way. I see those big brown eyes just start to look in a stray. Your mother's still the only other woman for me. Little Miss Magic, what you gonna be? Yes, she loves to ride into town with the top down Feel that warm breeze on her gentle skin She is my next of kin 
Constantly amazed by the blades of the fan on the ceiling Those clever little looks she gives just can't help but be appealing I know someday she'll learn to make up her own rhymes One day she's gonna learn how to fly That I won't deny I see a little more of me every day I feel a little more mustache turning gray Your mother's still the only other woman for me Little Miss Magic What you gonna be, little Miss Magic? What you gonna be, little Miss Magic? Just can't wait to see. It's raining, it's pouring, your old man is snoring. 